He obviously thought that people would believe what he told them. When Kathleen Grundy's body was exhumed, it was found to contain morphine. She trusted his every word, like anybody would with a GP. You have to trust somebody. She denied murder, he denied lying, he denied fabricating medical records. It's one thing to lose a loved one, to find out that you needn't have lost them, and you lost them to the hand of some monster. I'm Stephen Wright. This is the Mail Plus True Crime Podumentary, Dr. Death, The Trial of Harold Shipman. It's 20 years since Britain's most prolific serial killer, Harold Shipman, was jailed for life for murdering 15 of his patients. That a trusted family doctor respected in his community, should murder that number of people in cold blood was bad enough. But a public inquiry into his case was later to conclude that the death toll from his crimes could even have been more than 400, making him one of the world's worst serial killers. What on earth motivated this middle-aged married father of four to kill hundreds of people he was charged with protecting? And how did the man known as Dr Death escape capture for so long? I led the Daily Mail's coverage of the GP's trial at Preston Crown Court in late 1999 and early 2000. The QC who led the prosecution against Shipman was Richard Henriquez, who went on to become a top High Court judge. Sir Richard, as he is now known, has written a new book, which gives an in-depth account of 16 of his most notorious and high-profile cases, both as a barrister and a judge. His book has been serialised exclusively in the Daily Mail, and Sir Richard has joined me to discuss in more detail the prosecution of Britain's most prolific serial killer, Harold Frederick Shipman, who injected hundreds of his patients with lethal doses of diamorphine. It was August 1998 when you got a call from your clerk to say that your services were required on a new case. Can you remember what was said, as this was to be a real landmark in your career as a prosecution barrister? I remember it very clearly. Our senior clerk, Terry Creethorne, told me that she had arranged a consultation at Ashton Police Station, that's Ashton Underline, between Rochdale and Oldham. She said that a doctor had been charged with forgery and the Crown Prosecution Service wanted me to act for the prosecution. I'm bound to say that I wasn't terribly excited at that proposition. Indeed, I asked her why it was that the Crown Prosecution Service required Queen's Counsel in order to prosecute a forgery. Terry Creethorne had anticipated my response She had indeed spoken to the uh, Chief Crown Prosecutor for Greater Manchester, and he'd replied that this was the tip of the iceberg, and it was a case that the Crown Prosecution Service very much wanted me to accept. So talk me through what happened when you got to the police station. Who, Who was there, and what was the mood? Well, at the police station, the senior Crown Prosecutor, Robert Davis, was presiding, 
and he introduced me to Detective Superintendent Bernard Possels. He was the officer in charge of the Shipman Inquiry. There were two more junior officers, Detective Chief Inspector Williams, Detective Inspector Edgerton, and within moments, I realized that this was a very, very important matter. They told me that they were investigating a, a doctor uh, whom they believed to be a serial killer. It then became a very urgent matter because he was out on bail and continuing to act as a doctor. If he was a serial killer, the possibility that he would kill a patient while on bail became a very real and obvious risk. It was plain they did not at that stage have sufficient evidence to arrest and charge Shipman with murder. They had exhumed one single body, that of Kathleen Grundy, and they had sent the will, which was uh, allegedly forged, to a document examiner. The big question was, was it safe to leave Shipman conducting surgeries, seeing patients, and possibly committing murder? So what did you decide? We reached the conclusion that absolute urgency was uh, to prevail at the Forensic Science Laboratory and with the uh, document examiner. And within days, we had the response. The vehicle examiner concluded that the will had almost certainly been typed on a portable typewriter seized from Shipman's surgery. He concluded also that the signature was a forgery. And it was on the 28th of August that a forensic scientist, Julie Evans, informed the police that there was substantial morphine present in Mrs Grundy's body. How instrumental was that forged will in securing Harold Shipman's arrest and later conviction? It really was an absurd error. He plainly hadn't appreciated that Mrs Grundy had a very uh, loving capable, competent daughter, Angela Woodruff, a practicing solicitor. She'd never had a cross word with her mother. Her mother adored her, adored her children, Mrs. Grundy's grandchildren. The thought that Angela Woodruff would have been disinherited, and indeed, as Mrs. Woodruff herself put it, even if she disinherited me, she would never have disinherited her grandchildren, whom she absolutely adored was possibly the biggest single mistake that Shipman ever made. Shipman was called to the police station and initially arrested on suspicion of forgery and the murder of Mrs Grundy. When the police told you that they were investigating a suspected serial killer, did they give you any indication then at the scale of his alleged crimes? They were unaware themselves of the scale, save to say that it was substantial. They referred to him as a serial killer. Earlier in the year, there had been a police in 
investigation carried out by Detective Inspector David Smith. That was earlier in 1998. And so that inquiry found no evidence of criminal conduct in his practice. And so they were alert to the fact that there was much suspicion in the community as to the number of deaths that had taken place. He was charged, as you say, with the murder in the first week of September 98. What challenges did that cause you and the police, the publicity around the case, and presumably the alarm of his other patients? Everyone will be wondering whether it was my mother or father. That's where the pain is for the people. It caused immediate alarm within the community and it caused difficulties for the police in that every minute members of the community whose relative had died whilst a patient of Dr. Shipman uh, were literally um, bombarding, if that's not a cruel word to use, but they were contacting the police morning, noon and night to see whether or not their relative might have been murdered by Dr. Shipman. The police began looking through Shipman's patient files, looking for other potential victims and, if possible, applying to have their bodies exhumed to test for signs they'd been murdered. What was the common theme in those early cases, the exhumations? What was the common theme that pulled them together and made them suspected murders? The most obvious theme was that in the hours prior to their death, everyone was fit, out and about, ladies who all died most unexpectedly and very suddenly. And they were sitting up in their chairs, weren't they, and fully clothed when they were found? Almost all, save for uh, Ivy Lomas, whom he murdered uh, in his surgery, they were sitting in their living room, fully dressed, apparently peaceful, looking as if they were fast asleep. As the convictions established, they had been injected whilst sitting in their armchairs with massive doses of diamorphine. 16 months after she was buried, the body of Ivy Lomas was exhumed and found to contain high levels of morphine. The arrest and the charging of Shipman over the Kathleen Grundy case, he betrayed his arrogance even then, didn't he? He was indeed arrogant, condescending, and he thought it a personal insult that a detective constable and a detective sergeant should have interviewed him. He really thought that his standing as a medical practitioner merited a, an officer of much higher rank, and he treated the officers throughout uh, that interview as intellectually inferior. Do you think that he really thought he was going to get away with it? Yes, I think he did. Even during the trial, he thought that he would be acquitted. He suffered from a high degree of self-delusion, overconfidence. And in the early days, he had a great deal of support from many of his patients. On the day of his arrest, huge numbers of cards were sent wishing him well. But the support of his patients or former patients simply melted away. He 
was a married father of four who ran a single practice GP surgery in Hyde in Greater Manchester and, and a respectable member of the community. But if you stand back from it, he had about 3,000 patients, didn't he? He had no other doctors there keeping an eye on him. No, I don't believe had he had one single partner or even another doctor working in the practice that this uh, series of events could ever have taken place. The sheer number of deaths, there were more in his one-person practice than in, I think, the four-doctor practice uh, immediately opposite. And it was the fact that he just was not accompanied. There was nobody to oversee his activities. It does seem that he enjoyed the thrill of not only killing someone, but also the adrenaline rush or whatever he got from dealing with their families, from dealing with the undertakers, from trying to fob off any concerns around the circumstances in which their loved one died. There's no doubt that he must have enjoyed this whole scenario administering the morphine and everything that followed. It plainly was very dramatic. He had to confront families who were shocked, grieving, very, very upset. And his task was to ensure that there was no post-mortem, that the bodies were not taken to hospital by ambulance, and that if possible, he could advise families that cremations were much the best way of disposing of the body. Don't put your mother through it was his favorite expression that cropped up time and again, explaining uh, uh, what a terrible uh, ordeal for the deceased the post-mortem would be. And he was, of course, um, effective. He realized that any properly conducted, uh, efficient post-mortem examination would bring a murder to light. And he avoided it on over 400 occasions. We'd had Dr Shipman for over 20 years. My grand worshipped him. Uh, We thought he was looking after us on a personal level on that day. Uh, You know, he wanted to spare us any more pain. And he was looking after us. He really was the serial killer hiding in plain sight, wasn't he? I remember when I was doing my background research for the Daily Mail's coverage of the Shipman trial, I obtained a big team picture of GPs from the Northwest attending some conference in Manchester, I think it was. There must have been about 300 GPs there, and there, quite near the front, with his distinctive beard, was Shipman. It's quite extraordinary. I mean, I remember looking at that, thinking, you know, I must show this picture to my colleagues. Even now, it's very difficult to comprehend. There ended up being 15 murder charges, but the true figure even then was believed to be well into double figures. Logistically, it would have been impossible to charge Shipman with all the murders he was suspected of. How did you choose which cases to put on the charge sheet? And how did you and the police deal with the families of those whose names were not featured in the trial? This was probably the most difficult and demanding requirement throughout the the whole of my involvement. The first nine cases were, were simple. Those were the bodies that had been exhumed and they were all shown to to have a very high level of uh, morphine within the body. But we were very anxious indeed to include a number of cases where there had been a cremation because 
in fact, some of the cremation cases were actually stronger than the, uh, the burial cases. And we selected six of the remaining 90 or so cases. We were looking primarily for similar facts, facts which pointed to criminality. Altering the medical records post-death where Shipman had lied about being called to the home. Cases in which the deceased had been in particularly good health on the day in which they had died. Cases in which the deceased had been sitting peacefully at home in her armchair. Those were the principal similar facts that we were looking for. It presented enormous difficulties because that meant that some 90 families or thereabouts knew full well that their relative had been murdered and yet the police appeared to be taking no action. The difficulty was compounded by the interest that the Manchester Evening News was taking. The jury were never, ever told of the number of cases that we had investigated. Indeed, the number of cases where it was plain, in fact, that he had committed murder and had a, a newspaper reported the fact that he'd murdered over a hundred. A fair trial would have been extremely difficult. I'm going to make a little admission here, Sir Richard. I was aware through my own contacts that the police were looking at over 100 cases and that there was a real fear that he had indeed murdered over 100 people. One of our most senior lawyers at the Daily Mail took a really wise decision that we would downplay that story. So the story was rewritten to say that the police were examining the case files of, of, of 100 patients. And rather than it going on page one, which it was going to go on, it went on page two. And the senior lawyer who dealt with the case, I remember him saying to me, Stephen, for us to put this on the front page is atmospherically dangerous. And I've always remembered that phrase, atmospherically dangerous. We don't want to be accused of derailing such a momentous case because sometimes we get it right, sometimes we get it wrong. I think on that occasion, the Daily Mail definitely got it right. The trial started in Preston in, in the autumn of 1999. I was there. I remember it very well. There was a huge press and media presence there. I've you know, covered some big trials during my career. Rose West trial, Shipman case, the Jill Dando murder trials. We say in the media that we get a, like a, a, a big trial buzz. You don't get with other sort of less prominent cases, shall we say. Is it like that when you're a prosecutor, when you are going in to open the prosecution on a big, big case? Is the adrenaline really running and, and how do you manage that? Yes, a, a huge uh, buzz. Uh, I'm bound to say um, I find it extremely exciting. And how confident were you going into the trial that, that you would indeed get him down? Well, confident we had a strong case. 
but not as strong at the beginning of the trial uh, as it proved to be at the end of the trial. We had been served with a considerable volume of evidence from some 12 defense experts. We'd also been served with a lot of toxicology evidence seeking to establish that within deceased bodies, a comparatively small amount of morphine can feed upon itself and increase in volume. It looked at the beginning of the trial as if this would be a competition between experts. The GP will be in the witness box for the whole of next week. It proved not to be because um, by giving evidence and in giving evidence, Shipman conceded that a large number of his victims had indeed died by morphine poisoning. He blamed several of the deceased and asserted that they were drug takers, particularly Ivy Lomas and Mrs. Grundy herself. And I have commented. I've said that I had my suspicions that she was actually abusing a narcotic of some sort. He asserted that they had drug problems, that they had been taking morphine and that they died because they had overdosed. That, of course, made their assertions as to alternative causes of death uh, completely fatuous. I've no doubt that Shipman's biggest mistake was choosing to give evidence. Had he not given evidence and relied upon his experts, he might very well indeed have had at least some chance of acquittal. As it turned out, he had none. You would have been aware that back in the 1950s, there was a similar case, wasn't there, of a GP, Bodkin Adams, who was charged with one murder but suspected of many more. And there was a financial motive, allegedly, there for him killing his patients, yet he was acquitted. Was that at the back of your mind? Within a few hours of my initial consultation, I had reminded myself of the case of John Bodkin Adams. I often wonder to what extent Shipman was aware of Bodkin Adams' acquittal. He did read and he described himself as a reader of crime novels, almost addicted to them. Indeed, he told one of his nurses very shortly after the police had shown interest in him that on the evidence, I would have myself guilty, he said. The Kathleen Grundy murder was really extraordinary within the context even of the Shipman case because although there had been some items going missing from the homes of those who he had murdered, money wasn't really the chief motive here, was it? But with Kathleen Grundy, there was a schoolboy attempt to forge a will very near to the date of the murder. What was going on there, in your opinion? I imagine you must have enjoyed cross-examining him about that. There appear to have been some very minor pilfering going on at some of the homes. We were never in a position to prove this. But yes, you're right. This was not about money quite why he decided to forge Mrs. Grundy's will, uh, it is impossible to know. It was obviously his biggest single mistake. 
and absent that forged will, it's almost certainly that he would have continued being able to murder patients for some time to come. It has been categorized by some as a cry of help. It was so badly performed that uh, it was one of the factors that made me think that he may well uh, admit the murders and uh, and seek to rely upon the defense of diminished responsibility. Certainly, psychiatrically, it's impossible to conclude that uh, he was well at the time. It's difficult to think that anybody can uh, commit as many murders as he plainly did without being mentally somehow affected. In terms of the profiles, the victims, the vast majority were women, weren't they, and elderly? It was a very, very small proportion of men. I would speculate probably less than 10%. Of course, all 15 in the indictment were, were all ladies. He no doubt found it uh, far easier to ingratiate himself with his female patients, to see them in uh, Hyde in the morning, to say, you're looking a little peaky, it's time I took, took some of your blood. I'll come and visit you this afternoon. And that's how he was able to visit uh, so many elderly patients, for them to sit down in their front rooms in their favorite armchairs, roll up your sleeve. He would then say, I'll just take some of your blood. And far from taking blood, he was, as they looked away, injecting them with morphine. And within five minutes, they would have died a very peaceful, but very wicked death. The judge, Mr Justice Forbes, arrived at court this morning to take this trial into its final stage, the summing up. He told the jury of seven men and five women, this case is tragic and deeply disturbing. On the face of it, it seemed to be a very straightforward case, but nevertheless, the jury was out for six days. The first thing that this jury did, and the only request they made at any time, was for a flip chart. And so it was pretty obvious that they were going to consider every murder one by one. The summing up had been meticulous, every detail, and the jury had been taking a vast amount of notes something that, that one observes. And while six days might seem a long time, if you think about it, it was two or three murders a day. And most murder trials, the jury are out for a couple of days. I was pleased about that because a lot of juries, where there are numerous counts in them, like to find one or two not guilty, simply so it can be said, well, they've looked at every case very carefully. If they just convict across the board, it might appear that they have been a little cavalier in their attitude. But I'm quite sure that this jury went through every case immaculately. People often ask me, how do you know when a jury comes in that they're going to convict or find not guilty? And the rule of thumb I generally have is that if someone's going to be convicted, the jury don't, as a rule, look at the defendant. That's absolutely right. They don't look at the dock. The other one is this, that if the verdicts are going to be all the same, 
then the foreman will not have any document or piece of paper. And this foreman came with no indictment in his hand. That was a matter of some relief so far as I'm concerned. I've no doubt at all that there would be a large number of convictions. I was simply anxious in case one or more family had the terrible disappointment of an acquittal. The massive scale of Shipman's evil had long been suspected by the people of Hyde. Now they've had it confirmed officially. Relatives of Harold Shipman's victims left court tonight knowing that one of the most dangerous men seen in Britain during the last century had been permanently removed from society. Shipman showed no emotion as the verdicts came in. The man who had compounded the agony of his victims' families by refusing to acknowledge his guilt said nothing as the judge sentenced him to life after he was found guilty of 15 counts of murder and one charge of forgery. Now, of course, the verdicts were great for the families for justice, but the jury wasn't allowed to know, for legal reasons at the time, that Shipman had a criminal past, which really added to the scandal, didn't it? He was in trouble in the 70s for forging prescriptions and having a drug problem himself. One wonders, how on earth did this man stay in the medical profession? Shipman had been convicted in 1976. He pleaded guilty to eight specimen charges, offences of obtaining pethidine by deception, three offences of unlawful possession of pethidine, and three offences of forging a prescription. And as those convictions were read out, there was really a, a gasp of shock from every quarter of the court. The fact that he had never had his name removed from the register was something I found time of the trial, and I still find now really quite shocking. All this would never, ever have come to pass had proper steps been taken back in the 70s to remove him as a GP. Anybody looking at what happened in the 70s, the number of false prescriptions, the number of acts of dishonesty, really does uh, beg a belief in, in my view that that man was allowed to continue as a general practitioner and that members of the public could go to his surgery believing that they were dealing with a conscientious, honest, decent doctor. Shameful, absolutely shameful. He could have been caught earlier, couldn't he? Concerns have been raised early in the year that Dr Shipman may have been killing his patients and there'd been an inquiry by Manchester Police earlier in 98. I know it's been argued that there was a narrow remit on what they were supposed to do, but as police officers, you have to follow the scent of the crime. And it was there, wasn't it? The stats on the number of cremations, the number of deaths in his surgery. It was all there to be found. My sympathies in many respects are with Detective Inspector David Smith, who was given the responsibility of looking into Shipman's activities only a few months before Mrs. Grundy was murdered. And so the numbers were there. He was underfunded, plainly. It was a huge responsibility that he was given. And unfortunately, Shipman was able to pull the wool over his eyes. The only point that I think can be made to uh, alleviate Inspector Smith's unhappiness is that comparatively few murders were 
committed after his investigation that will be of little consolation to those who were in fact murdered after he carried out his investigation. Of course, Shipman convicted in January 2000. Four years later, he killed himself in prison. A final act of defiance. Harold Shipman, the man who craved control above all else, took his own decision about when his life sentence would end. It was another savage blow to his victims' uh, families that he should choose the timing of his death. It was no act of remorse on his part because he had policies uh, with standard life, if I remember correctly, and the effect of them altered dramatically upon him obtaining the age of 60. If he died before 60, his wife would receive a, a large lump sum, I think, of £100,000 and an annuity of some £10,000 per annum. She would receive only £5,000 per annum if he died after 60. And so his death ensured that his widow would be well provided for thereafter. I remember the chief constable of Greater Manchester at the time was furious that Shipman was able to kill himself. There was great, great anger amongst the many relatives that Shipman had died, that they weren't pleased to see his passing. They were furious that he avoided years of punishment by way of incarceration. Now Shipman is gone, but so too is the hope for answers to the many questions that still remain. The big cases I cover, sometimes people say to me, well, that person couldn't have done it because they didn't have an obvious motive. Well, with Shipman, of course, what motive on earth could he have had to murder dozens, if not hundreds, of his patients? What's your view on why he did it? There's been talk about his losing his mother at a young age to cancer and a bitterness there. Because when you're a prosecutor, you don't offer views do you deal in evidence but now you can sit back and look at the case reanalyze it well, what prompted him to do this extraordinary killing spree in opening the case to the jury i stated that shipman was exercising the ultimate power of controlling life and death and that he repeated it so often that he must have found the drama of taking life to his taste I think you're right that his mother's early death may well have had something to do with this. But my final conclusion was that, except for Mrs. Grundy's case, that the explanation was comparatively simple, that he enjoyed the thrill of killing his patients, not merely injecting them with morphine. What he enjoyed was the subsequent drama of fobbing off the family, ensuring that no post-mortem took place, falsifying medical records, and ensuring, if possible, that the body was cremated and deceiving the undertaker and the coroner. He was every time writing his own crime thriller, and every time he got away with it. He must have felt, after so many murders, that he could walk on water. You've been listening to a Mail Plus true crime podumentary with me, Stephen Wright. 
With thanks to Sir Richard Henriquez, whose new book, From Crime to Crime, is published by Hodder Stoughton. Next time on True Crime, Sir Richard will return to give the inside story on the prosecution of the schoolboy killers of toddler James Bolger.